continuing through our sermon series called The Untamed Jesus. It's a look at the Gospel of John and some of the more uncomfortable aspects of Jesus' ministry. The interactions that Jesus had that were seemingly uncensored and that tend to offend our sense of propriety. Last week, Jay kicked off our series by discussing how we tend to mold Jesus into images that appeal to us um, by focusing on the scriptures that appeal to what we think that Jesus should look like at the expense of looking at the parts of scripture that are a little bit more uncomfortable. And what this means sometimes is that we can miss the full picture of who Jesus is because we're only seeing it through our own lens. So in this series, we're going to be pushing into passages that involve Jesus speaking so that we can focus on Jesus's words and what he's saying as opposed to what we think that he should be saying. So we can look at pieces of Jesus that we sometimes try to pretend that don't exist. So today we're going to look at John 4, which presents the story of Jesus meeting a woman at a place called Jacob's Well in Samaria. Tom gave a really great um, insight into what the story is about, which is Jesus leaving the countryside of Judea, going through Samaria, and going to meet this woman. Basically, Jesus leaving the 99 to go find the one and waiting there for her in order to have this encounter with her. The interaction that Jesus has with the woman is incredibly raw and uncensored. So let's start by reading John 4, 1 through 10. In the passage immediately preceding this one, we learn that Jesus and his disciples had been baptizing people in the countryside of Judea, where John the Baptist and his disciples were also baptizing people. And at the time, Jesus' disciples were starting to get caught in the middle of a conflict over the practice of baptism and how it was being practiced differently between his disciples and John's disciples. John 4, 1 through 10 says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So let's pause here and look at the geography of the area that Jesus is traveling through. In this passage, Jesus starts his journey in the southern country of Judea, which is where most Jewish people at the time considered to be the center of Jewish life. Jerusalem was in Judea, and that was the spiritual and cultural center of Jewish life. If you wanted to become a rabbi and hold the highest religious office possible, you went and studied at the temple in Jerusalem for all of the festivals that you were to celebrate and, and all the observances of your faith. You had to travel to Jerusalem in order to, to the temple in order to observe those practices. On the other hand, Jesus came from Galilee, north of Judea, north of Samaria. The Galilee was formerly part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and due to various historical traumas that the northern kingdom of Israel had experienced over the years, Galilee had developed an altogether separate culture and history from Judea. This area was isolated from the cultural center of Jerusalem. And unlike Judea, Galilee had a racially diverse population and developed its own distinct culture with heavy influences from Greek, Roman, and Aramaic cultures. So because of this influence from non-Jewish cultures, the Jews of Judea looked down on the Galileans as being spiritually inferior. As for language, 
Galileans spoke Aramaic with a different accent from Judeans. So Judeans basically considered them to be less refined. They considered them to be country bumpkins. So bear in mind that Jesus came from Galilee. So think about how you picture Jesus speaking in your mind. Does he talk like a news anchor with non-regional dialect? Or does he talk with kind of a Texas twang? So if you picture Jesus speaking like Morgan Freeman, as I often do, you're probably kind of on the right track to how he actually sounded. Anyway, so at the start of this passage, Jesus is in a strange country, trying to get away from a political conflict over the minutiae of baptism and ceremonial washing. For whatever reason, he doesn't want to be involved in this conflict. So he decides to head home to Galilee. Can we get the map up again? So it's common for Jewish people to travel from Judea and Galilee and back again in order to perform trade or to, again, go to Jerusalem to perform the various rituals that they had to perform. So the shortest route to get from Galilee to Judea and back again would have been directly through the country of Samaria. On foot, the trip between Jerusalem and Capernaum, where Jesus performed most of his ministry, would have been about 80 miles or taken about four days by foot. So that's the route that Jesus chose to take in this particular instance. However, because of the conflict between Jews and Samaritans at the time, it was incredibly dangerous for a Jewish person to travel directly through Samaria. So even though it added significantly to the travel time, in some cases taking up to two weeks to travel between the two areas, most Jews would choose to go either along the Mediterranean Sea or around Samaria on the east along Perea because both of those areas had Jewish settlements where travelers could find protection from other Jews who were living along the road. But instead of taking the safer route, Jesus decides to go directly through Samaria along with his disciples. And it was one of the most dangerous places for them to be, again, because of the conflict between Jews and Samaritans. So let's pick up the story from verse 7, after Jesus sits down at Jacob's well to take a break during the hottest part of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. There are a lot of layers to this interaction. So let's first address why it is that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In order to do this, we're going to look at some of the practices of Samaritans, which there are still about 800 Samaritans living in the region of Samaria to this day. So we can look at their cultural practices now, which have been preserved over the centuries, as a pretty good indication of what they practiced back then. So first of all, Jews and Samaritans both believe in the same God, and they both believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The primary areas where they differ are where they choose to worship and how they approach cleanliness. Samaritans are extremely strict about cleanliness. And this is something that you would not get from reading the passage. In the passage, it sounds like Jews believe that Samaritans are unclean because they're probably lax about how they perform their rituals. But on the other hand, Samaritans are actually quite, quite strict about their cleanliness. And a lot of their religious practices focus on female cleanliness in particular, to the point where Samaritan women who begin menstruating are required to isolate themselves from their families and abandon all household duties for seven days after they first start their periods in order to avoid contaminating others. In ancient times, even touching a menstruating woman's shadow 
could be rounds for considering something to become unclean. Getting a break from household chores for seven days out of every month might sound awesome at first, but if you start to think it through, you can imagine how frustrating and isolating this can be for a Samaritan woman. She can't hug her kids or kiss her husband for a week. When people give her food, they can't hand it to her. They have to throw it to her or they have to place it on the ground, step away, and she has to pick it up off the floor and put it into her own bowl in order to eat it. It's humiliating and dehumanizing. She has to bring her own chair to social events so that she can sit away from the crowd, away from any rugs, away from any possessions that anyone else might touch. And she has to sit in the section where all the other menstruating women are sitting. Everyone knows at this, at, throughout every point in her life at what point she is at in her menstrual cycle. Her identity is reduced to nothing more than the stat, state of her uterus at a particular time. So this is pretty strict. And yet despite how strict the Samaritans were about their cleanliness rituals, the rabbinic Jews still considered the Samaritans to be unclean because they didn't observe cleanliness rituals in the exact same way. This is documented in the Mishnah, which is the first written account of the rabbinic oral traditions of the Jewish people. Mishnah Nida 4.1 essentially says that Samaritan women count the number of days of their menstrual cycle wrong so that they don't observe the correct number of uncleanliness days. And because of that, Samaritan men who marry those women and have relations with those women are also unclean. And the impurity of the men and the women can impart impurity to food and drink through touch. So in other words, the Samaritan uncleanliness is highly contagious. Even though they practice their own cleanliness rituals, it's just not the right kind. So therefore, they are not to be associated with, according to the rabbinic Jews. So given this context, it is insane that Jesus is asking this woman to talk to a Samaritan woman, and not only talk to the Samaritan woman, but ask her to pick up a jug of water that she touches with her unclean hands and pour him a drink of water, which in theory should contaminate his body. But Jesus the rabbi does not choose not to speak to her. He chooses to ask her for a drink. He knows how his people feel about her. She knows how his people feel about her. And she is appropriately scandalized at his request and his decision to even talk to her. The thing is, the flip side to ritual uncleanliness is that there's also a ritual to restore a person to a state of purity. In both the Jewish and Samaritan faiths, this ritual is called the mikveh, which is the ritual cleansing bath, which a person is supposed to take part in after they've been through a period of uncleanliness. So this bath was usually a pool of standing water that was located inside of the synagogue, and the person was supposed to immerse themselves in it and then come out as a symbol of their cleanliness so that they could once again approach God, worship, and also take part in their community. So this ritual of the mikveh, the immersion bath, is the basis of baptism, the baptisms that John was performing and the baptisms that Jesus' disciples were performing. Certain types of uncleanliness, however, particularly woman uncleanliness resulting from menstruation or childbirth, required running water from a spring or river in order to fully restore the person to a state of purity. That running water um, was called the Hebrew phase Mayim Chaim, which is translated as living water. So in other words, this living water was necessary, this running water was necessary in order for a woman to truly become clean. When Jesus tells the woman that he will give her living water, Mayim Chaim, 
what he's communicating to her is that if she comprehended that the Messiah was standing before her, she would know that he could make her clean. If she truly understood who Jesus was, she would not be shocked at his request. She would know that she could be made clean in God's eyes forever. In a way, Jesus is challenging the woman. He's saying, do you really understand who God is? If you did, you would be acting differently. But he's not saying she doesn't understand God because the way that she practices her faith is wrong. He's saying she doesn't understand God because her belief about her worth to God is wrong. And the woman responds to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So let's pause for a moment here and reflect on how this interaction differs from the interactions that Jesus had with his own people. Last week, Jay led us through an interaction that Jesus had with the rabbi Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, thoroughly versed in all of the scripture and esteemed by his fellow Jewish leaders. In that interaction, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus res or Nicodemus responds in what Jay called a sassy fashion, arguing that no one can re-enter their mother's womb to be reborn. Jesus was speaking in spiritual metaphors, and it totally went over Nicodemus's head that he was speaking in metaphors. Here in this passage, when Jesus' disciples come back with food for him, Jesus tells them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples' response was to say to each other, could someone have brought him food? In both of these interactions, Jesus is using metaphorical language to communicate an idea, but it goes completely over people's heads. And they respond to a literal interpretation of Jesus' words rather than what he's actually trying to communicate. In contrast, the Samaritan woman is right there with Jesus. Jesus tells her that he's able to give her living water, mayim chayim, that lasts longer than any water that she can get from a well. In other words, he can make her clean once and for all so that she no longer has to live in the cycle of cleanliness and uncleanliness that governs her life. She senses this conversation is heading in a spiritual direction. And she keeps up with Jesus, and she responds right back to him using his own metaphor. She tells Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So Jesus responds to her, Go, call your husband and come back. So let's pause there. Why would Jesus tell her to go call her husband in response to asking him to make her clean? This is a very weird and uncomfortable request in what's already a pretty uncomfortable situation. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Again, this conversation has taken a very uncomfortable turn. Jesus clearly wasn't going to be inhibited by social customs. So there was really no good reason for him to ask her to go get her husband. It's not like he was asking her to make sure that she had her husband's approval before talking to him. If he cared about that, he would have asked for her husband in the first place. At face value, it almost seems like Jesus knew the woman's romantic situation, and he set her up so that he could call her out on her sin. 
Like, do we think this is what's happening? Does Jesus point out our sins as a strategy for getting us to grow spiritually? Personally, the idea of this makes me really uncomfortable. I already beat myself up enough about my own shortcomings, and the idea of Jesus piling on and also pointing out my shortcomings is really uncomfortable to me to think about. But the fact is, it doesn't matter what makes us uncomfortable. These are the words that Jesus spoke to the woman. And for whatever reason, this was what he chose to say to her. And these are the words that ultimately made an impact on her life and ultimately on her community. This revelation of the woman's history reminds us of Jeremiah 2.13, which says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In the woman's history of broken relationships, we see that her life is a broken cistern, incapable of holding water. She's been trying and trying to earn her salvation through faith, through her repeated attempts at marriage, and she's so tired from her failures that she's basically given up trying to live up to her society's expectations. She's lonely and isolated, coming to the well at the hottest part of the day so that she can avoid running into people that she might know. And she instead runs into a man who's there waiting for her, who has no business talking to her, and who dares speak to her and ask her about the intimacy of her relationship with God, which is a very personal thing to get into with a person right away. And even though he knows about her shameful past, he still does this. He still engages with her, goes there and waits for her and meets her. The woman tries to redirect the conversation by pointing out how Jesus' people's beliefs are different from her people's beliefs. And that therefore, despite what he was saying possibly being true, they couldn't possibly see eye to eye because they are just so different in where they come from. Jesus declares to her then that he's the who will make all people clean so that there can no longer be this distinction between clean and unclean, between different people's opinions on who's right and who's wrong. Jesus is ultimately going to be the Messiah that unites them all. Soon after, Jesus' disciples bring lunch to him. For all the reasons we've already discussed, they are surprised when they come in and see him talking to a Samaritan woman. At that point, the woman leaves her water jug at the well and goes to tell everyone in town about what she's just experienced. When his disciples offer him food, John 4, 34 through 38 tells us that Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I want to close out our talk today with a reflection on these verses, which answer the question that the disciples had. Why was Jesus talking to this woman? When Jesus tells his disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. He's urging his disciples to recognize the spiritual hunger in the people all around him. Regardless of where they are, whether they are in Judea, Samaria, or Galilee, John 4 tells us that many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus because of the Samaritan woman's testimony and because of the time that Jesus spent with them in their town. Jesus is preparing his disciples to accept the fact that these people 
their bitter enemies, are going to become part of their ranks. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not the disciples actually did end up accepting the Samaritans as fellow believers during Jesus' lifetime. The Bible doesn't tell us whether the disciples decided to go ahead and baptize the Samaritans who decided to believe in Jesus during that time. It's very possible that they didn't. If you recall, the Mishnah is the holy book that records the writings or the opinions of Jewish oral rabbinic tradition. So all of the oral traditions that were beyond what we find in the Bible, um, that were basically the popular opinions of the day, were recorded in the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah was written almost 200 years after Jesus had this interaction with the woman at the well. And the Mishnah is the book that says outright that Samaritan women and Samaritan men by extension are unclean. So despite this happening 200 years after Jesus' interaction with this woman, it's clear that there's still tension between Jews and Samaritans. There is still judgment going on. Jesus' interaction with this woman did not restore peace between the Jews and the Samaritans. So even though the Samaritans have chosen to follow Jesus, for all we know, they were still outsiders at this time. The saying, it's still four months until harvest, seems to have been a sentiment of procrastination. It's like saying, slow your roll. Don't stress about it. We have time. We tend to think of Jesus as someone who values rest and Sabbath. But when Jesus tells the disciples to open their eyes and that the harvest is ripe, he's encouraging the disciples to take action on the harvest now. Maybe this command was specific to the particular time they were in, because they only had two days to spend in Samaria before they went back to Galilee. And Jesus possibly wanted them to baptize as many Samaritans as possible. Or maybe Jesus really was trying to impart a sense of urgency about the state of the world. I know in the past when I've heard in church about the harvest is ripe, open your eyes, it's always been about, you know, you got to make sure that you're evangelizing. You got to make sure that you're bringing people into the kingdom as much as possible. And that may have been how I approached Christianity in my younger days, but now as an adult, I've kind of taken a step back and I feel like, I don't know, like it's going to happen in God's time. I'm going to let God do his thing and I'm going to be here for him when it happens. But that also ignores the sense of urgency that we hear in Jesus' words when he says, the time is now. The harvest is here. Like, we need to pick up this harvest. And so I know that for me personally, I don't spend enough time thinking about the harvest. What is the harvest that is in front of me? What is it that Jesus has a sense of urgency about for me? Like, what is the circumstance happening in my life right now that I need to respond to? And so... I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, this call to action is something that makes me very uncomfortable in my current place in life, and it's something that I definitely need to press into more. So here's my reflection question for today. What is the harvest that Jesus is calling you to reap? Meaning, where is God calling you to take action today? So let's take a moment to reflect on this. Um, we'll just take a minute or so, and then I'll go ahead and close this out in prayer as we reflect on that. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being a God who defies our expectations. We praise you for being the source of living water 
the living water that cleanses us. Only in you can we be made clean. Only in you can our hearts be purified and our relationships made whole. We pray that we would be continually cleansed by the living water that only you can provide. We acknowledge that we are broken vessels. We can never do enough. We can never be enough. We can never restore ourselves to right relationship with you, no matter how hard we try. Only you can make us whole. We pray that our hearts would be open to allowing you to do this work in us. We pray that our eyes would be open to seeing the work that you're doing in the world around us and that we would be ready for the harvest that's right in front of us, Lord. We thank you that you invite us into your kingdom to take action with you, Lord, as you're doing work in the world around us, as you're beginning to restore us to shalom. And we pray that we would respond to the calls that you give us, Lord, whether that call is to a sense of action and urgency or whether that call is to a place of waiting to see what you do. Lord, we just thank you for your presence. We lift this up in your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you.